This is Mutant, and you're listening to Dialogues at the End of Democracy. When we were recording this episode, we had the catastrophe in Gaza in mind. In the weeks since, the fragility and thus the irreplaceable significance of political hope has only intensified. As we published this episode, Russian dissident Alexei Navalny has been murdered. Elsewhere, the United States has yet again vetoed another desperate call for a ceasefire in Gaza. What does the word hope mean under these circumstances? But perhaps the question we must really ask ourselves is whose hope? To have hope in a recording studio, Eshwari reminds me, means nothing. To have hope in Gaza today is what keeps our humanity alive. This is the paradoxical truth of hope. That it is those who live at the threshold of the unlivable, those whose lips may never speak the word, who keep us human keep us from falling into a suicidal nihilism in which we give up on the idea or the faith that another world is possible. It is those who live this unlivable who rescue hope from empty solace and return it to us as a political commitment. Ishwari, this conversation on hope is in a sense a continuation of our last episode on the idea of the human it may well be that that hope is what constitutes us as human that constitutively makes us human and so i want to just begin by asking you simply what is it we speak of when we speak of hope to respond to that question perhaps um is to also start it within the structure of mutant to start making a distinction between abuse and loss of words and their gravity. Um, I wonder if uh, hope is that one idea or one virtue, and I really do believe hope is a virtue, uh, worth holding on to, worth even putting into practice. Uh, Hope is a commitment as well. Uh, And I wonder if the real trouble with hope today is not its abuse, which is rife and pervasive, as you were saying in the beginning. Everyone uses hope, even when they have none, or when they don't mean it, rather. Um, The real trouble with hope is that it is so easy to lose. When we call, as I believe we must, hope a virtue, uh, we are also opening it to or opening the word to an uh, an interrogation um, of why it is so ambiguous, why it remains so susceptible to loss, and why we need it, especially when we have lost it entirely. Among all the words um, we use uh, in everyday parlance, Hope is perhaps the weakest word. And that is why I believe that a recuperation of hope is both a moral and a linguistic exercise, as well as a political one. So as we begin to answer your question, I would, I would, I would simply state the, 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 the underlying claim I'm trying to make today is that hope is first and foremost a political virtue. Hope, first and foremost, is a social and political commitment. Hope is not individualistic. Hope is not something that we hold on to because we are worried about our own survival, which Of course, it's true, but it is not everything. Hope is a belief in our capacity to cope together. Hope is a conviction, but above all, hope is an act of keeping faith 
in our ability to cope with what is thrown at us. And in that sense, hope becomes political and politics becomes hopeful only when there is a collective commitment to to changing the world and sometimes to simply surviving the world as we find it. Um, the abuse of hope uh, as a word, as, as you were saying, comes not from the fact that it is easy to use and throw away with casualness. It comes from the fact that among all the virtues we have, hope is the first one we lose. Hope is a weak virtue. Or if we were to use Ambedkar's phrase, hope is a weak force. But it is a force that therefore, precisely because it is weak, the weakest must construe and believe is inalienable from them. Because it is the weakest, the most vulnerable among human beings, those on the threshold of the unlivable, who hold on to hope that they will live on. To understand hope is to understand what makes us human. To understand hope is to understand why we must retain our humanity no matter how unlivable the human itself becomes. It is in that sense that hope, to me, is, is a political commitment. Um, it is in that sense that to lose hope is to not simply give up. But as you were saying, uh, to slide into a certain kind of nihilism itself, where words, where promises, where our very faith will come to mean nothing. There are two dimensions um, to this that I want to uh, spend a few minutes on. One, uh, your description of, of hope as a political commitment. And uh, when you call it a commitment, I want to understand what relation courage has to hope, um, or, or more precisely, I'd say fearlessness um, has to hope. Um, and the other dimension, because you speak of it as a political virtue, the the idea of virtue, uh, virtuousness, often comes to us through faith, if not religion. And I wonder in what sense um, faith or religion have informed our understanding of hope and in a sense rendered it almost tautologically like something you hope for hope rather than work for uh, or work at have we sort of absorbed the idea of hope as something we receive rather than create in one very, very simple sense, the answer would be yes. Uh, we sometimes tend to wait for others to give us hope. Um, we sometimes tend to believe that um, hope is not uh, something we need to put our work into. But this is, this is exactly why uh, I believe that hope is, is political, that politics, in fact, is made of hope. Let's call politics an activity that uh, desires transformation of the world around us. Right? Otherwise, there is nothing political about human beings. Human beings are political only insofar as they believe that a better world, a more just world, a more equal world is possible. And the very idea that compels us to act in, in pursuit of that world the very idea that fuels our desire to change that world is rooted. In fact, it's soaked in a hopeful future. 
the idea that a future uh, is imminent in which the world will look better, the planet will look uh, calmer, uh, there will be less violence or strife. All of all of the things that today or at any given time since the dawn of our, our political modernity, all of these things that drive political action are soaked in, um, in, uh, in a hope that uh, the future is, is better, the future is brighter. Uh, and in that sense, there is no politics. And, le and let's, let's add the idea that there is no democratic politics. Or better still, there is no vision of democratic politics that can a not have hope at its moral center, and b can survive uh, a lack or absence of hope. There is no politics uh, without hope. To be political is to believe that the future is more hopeful and to be hopeful about that future rather, right? Um, so I, I, I think that um, in some ways, hope is the underlying commitment to a secular faith. Hope is a faith that does not surrender itself to any transcendent authority other than the transcendent authority of human beings and their ability to cope and to change. Um, if it's a virtue, it's not a religious one. Insofar as hope is a political virtue, it is perhaps the most human, most imminent political virtue um, that is divorced from any sense or any soulless that help will come from elsewhere, that someone else, someone larger, someone, you know, someone transhuman, a figure or deity or God will intervene in the affairs of human uh, life and human world and make it better. Uh, the moment you start um, imagining a world in which someone else will take care of you, you have landed into the realm of the mystical, the miraculous. Then you're not hoping. Then you believe in miracle. That's the realm of the miracle. Now, it, it's not that miracle itself is not a political category. It is. It can be. Uh, but, but here we are using it in that strictly theological, messianic, almost mystical uh, sense, where we believe that something else will uh, intervene and change, uh, change the contours of the human condition and its barbarities. To have hope is to let go of miracle. To have hope is to commit ourselves to political change. To have hope is to commit ourselves to a political faith that a better world is possible. This is why hope sometimes can feel weak. Because no matter how hard we try, the world seems to sometimes not change. This is why hope feels weak, because in the wake of, and in the way we are surrounded by desolation, hope seems feeble. Hope seems like a thread you can hang by rather than change your existence with and through. Hope, Precisely because it is a thread one hangs by. Precisely because one refuses to let go of it. Precisely because there is always hope even when there is not. Is the oxygen of 
politics. It is in that sense that it is less of a religious category and more of a political virtue. It is the thread that allows human beings to cope. We speak of hope staring at possibly the ruins and ravages of one of the most destructive acts of war the modern world has witnessed. Confined to a strip of land that was home barely weeks ago to two million people. And it is now a strip of land that faces a condition, an existential ruin that is way past a humanitarian catastrophe. We are now looking at Gaza in the throes of an unprecedented famine. And while we think of hope, it is important to remember why it is so easy to give up on it. Because to give up on hope seems the only way to cope. To let go of any hope that we will survive it can sometimes lighten the burden, can sometimes lower the stakes of life itself. And that is what we sometimes tend to call famine. Remember, famine is not simply hunger. Famine is not simply starvation. Famine is the loss of our ability to cope with that hunger. Famine is not simply dying of malnutrition. Famine is that moment of desperation where you choose flight, where fleeing and leaving your home is the only way to cope, to retain hope. We begin this year with that catastrophe. It would almost sound anomalous, even murderous, to not remind ourselves that to talk of hope in the face of that flight that we are seeing today, and not only in Gaza, is to also talk about our indifference to the human at large. To talk of the hope that we are talking of right now, hope as a political virtue, is to is incomplete, actually, I believe, without talking of the human itself. To hope is to be human. And sometimes to retain humanity we must give up on hope. And that's the aporia we are talking about. At what point, close to which threshold, does living become an act of living without hope? The unlivable becomes a function of being human itself. Let us think about that, I believe. We need to think about that. Can we, as we begin to think of the human, um, this is a question that has been on my mind uh, for a while as we talk of Hannah Arendt, a thinker, who is one of the central figures we think with um, at Mutant. And her seminal book, The Human Condition. And I've wanted to ask for a while why we attach the word condition to the human. Um, what is Hana's human? And what is the condition of being human she is referring to? That's, a, that's an important question uh, to begin with, especially if what is at stake in hope is our very humanity. and especially if what is at stake in our humanity 
is our ability to hope and our ability to cope. Because in the end, what is the human other than a will to live? What is the human other than an obstinate attachment to living and to life? Uh, we can go back to some of that tradition, to, to parts of that tradition that Hannah Arendt holds very close to, uh, to her own thought, um, to the tradition of Roman political thought, but also to more recent uh, ways of thinking about politics, um, in which to be human is to first uh, believe in security as the primary condition of all life and therefore the organizing principle of all politics. To be human is to crave security, to crave life and living conditions in which life can prosper. This is the origin and the foundation of the social contract. In many ways, we are human because somewhere we believe we owe one another something. And from this recognition of owing one another something appears the idea of moral and political responsibility. And yet we know that that sense of being responsible to one another, what in recent times has come to be called a responsibility to the commons, is more theoretical than practical. What we today call the commons has never been used in common, has never been accessed in common, has never been available to everyone equally in common. Right? So the condition in Hannah Arendt's description, the, the, the making of the human condition is partly the making of the human being through human action. One of the things that underlies uh, the expression, the human condition, is Arendt's belief that human beings are not ontologically given. We are not simply a species. We are makers of the condition, including conditions of extreme violence that we find ourselves in. We are the makers and givers of the rights we believe we possess or we must possess, but we are also um, we are also agents of surrendering those rights. We are also agents of taking away those rights. Um, we are human not because we bear rights. We are human also because we take them away, because we are rightless because we can be consigned to a world of rightlessness. And that, I think, is where the human condition uh, aligns at its closest point with her earlier work, The Origins of Totalitarianism. There's that, um, there's that brilliant moment in that, that book uh, where Arendt uh, writes in a, in, a, in, a, in a fashion that is strikingly resonant today. The first loss, she points out, which the rightless suffered was the loss of their homes. And this meant the loss of the entire social texture into which they were born. But she adds, uh, because she wants to tease out a, a legal paradox of this, of this uh, second loss that it was the end of government protection that truly undoes the hope that even the most abstract, the most formal sanctity of human life um, could be guaranteed under international law, right? There is a, uh, there's a legal paradox involved in posing and, 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 you know, imposing our faith in international law to take care of it, right? Treaties of reciprocities and international agreements have woven a web around the earth, she says, that makes it possible for the citizen of every country to take his legal status with him, no matter where he goes. Yet whoever is no longer caught in this web, she says, finds themselves out of legality altogether. And that is what we see again and again today in Gaza.
that to be human is to possess rights but to possess rights requires you to be caught in a web of legality out of which there are no rights so that we see the united states unilaterally vetoing any proposals for ceasefire or a humanitarian pause in gaza um just a, just last week as we record the united states simply vetoed a resolution for a humanitarian pause and ceasefire being the country that calls itself a nation of laws governed by the rule of law and this is where arents use of the word condition acquires its greatest salience the human condition is not is not the human being let's say let's let's make it even starker when she says the human condition one thing she distinguishes it from this condition from is the human being and this is where she also departs therefore from her mentor and lover martin heidegger who believed that there was something ontologically given to the idea of being human human being to arent it's the condition of being human that needs to be given a certain kind of both philosophical heft but also an archaeological priority we need to excavate the conditions of being human rather than the ontological clarity or ontological solidity of being human to be human is to return again to hope that no matter what we will give others that ability to cope and right now we are failing in that gift because you've spoken of um, gaza in specific gaza in particular but also because we have spoken of migrants the figure of the migrant uh, previously and the the idea that the moment you're not subject to a legal regime um you 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 lose all rights and in a sense uh you no longer seem human but is it not the case that the only true human then uh is the one who puts their faith uh outside of legal regimes right um in the act of flight um becoming fully human rather than merely legal subjects yeah absolutely and in 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 so many ways that is the moral and the not to mention legal and political catastrophe we are staring at we are staring at a moment where to retain hope means to give up on it we are i mean what, let's define let's define a catastrophe what is a catastrophe when it comes to the human it is when the human will to live must cling on to a certain kind of hopelessness that they will be able to live that is what a catastrophe is that is what let's uh let's uh sharpen it what is desolation a word that we sometimes uh tend to use in moments of grim and grave despair when do we call a world desolate we call the world uh around us desolate or subject to or in the midst of a catastrophe when that one thing which makes us human the will to live like human beings the the, the desire to be treated as human the hope that our humanity will be recognized now finds its solace and its anchorage only in 
a certain kind of hopelessness that nothing will in the end matter. I'm, I'm suggesting that we, we, we begin our thought at that threshold where the very line between what is humanly livable has become indistinguishable from what is humanly unlivable. You simply cannot survive on hope alone. Where hopelessness or despair is the only company you got with the desolation around you, in the desolation around you. That is what constitutes a catastrophe. And uh, 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 the end of the world as we know it. The end of humanity as we know it. A humanity completely given to a kind of cynicism, right? That anything will matter. But cynicism is the luxury of the privileged. Cynicism is the language of the masters. Cynicism is the um, fuel that drives indifference worldwide of comfortable majorities. Hopelessness is something else. So one of the things we want to distinguish here is cynicism from hopelessness. We want to separate that. To be hopeless is to not be cynical. To be hopeless is to compel hope to come up and meet the moment, meet the catastrophe at its point of greatest impact. Cynicism is the end of language. Cynicism is the first step towards an absolutely nihilistic renunciation of the world as it can be. It is the end of imagination, right? In the most ordinary sense of the term, Judishkar would even call it moral laziness. Right? Masquerading as a vice. Cynicism is not even a vice. Even when it masquerades itself smugly as a sort of an indifferent vice. It's not. And sometimes the task of democracy is to make that separation clear and unequivocal. To be without hope is to still be hopeful that there will be hope. And nobody has put this enigma of democratic hope more powerfully than Du Bois. When Du Bois coins the expression unhope, he says, I do not, I feel less than hopeful, but I am not hopeless. This is a condition, he says, in this strangely powerful, for me, absolutely indispensable neologism, unhope. And one task of our democratic faith, one task of our democratic commitment at large is to rescue unhope from the indifferent and smug nihilism of those who believe in nothing. This is why even hopelessness that we see today in Gaza, because otherwise the word famine will not be used. The word famine has a particular gravity to it. The word famine is different from other related and adjacent terms like starvation, hunger, malnutrition, even poverty. Famine is where hunger meets flight. Famine is where the will to live clashes with the end of the ability to cope. 
And that is where we need to think about hope. Hope not in opposition to hopelessness or unhope. Hope as that redemptive counterforce that meets nihilism at its most indifferent moment and opens a different vision, a different possibility, a different prospect of being human. And I think part of why we cannot think of the human without hope is because on the one hand, it is the weakest of all political virtues because it is so easy to lose hope. And on the other, because it is not the social contract that keeps us alive. If anything, we live in, the, in, the, in a world of exception to the social contract. We now live in a world where we have given up on the social and the civic contract. But we have still retained some semblance of our humanity because we have retained some hope. I think we need to rethink our political experiment, our democratic experiment, our faith in democracy itself around a new kind of radical hope. Because to give up on hope is to open ourselves to evil, plain and simple. And that is why the, the, the prophetic black tradition, the tradition of, of, of anti-caste and anti-racist democracy is so important because it retains hope, not as an excuse. When hope is too glib, when hope is too powerful, when hope, is, when hope becomes a category of the demagogues, it latches and lurches onto that other realm of the miracle, to that mystical falsity that someone else will redeem us, someone else will save us. Hope in the hands of the powerful is simply a masquerade for indifference. It is the weak, it is the oppressed, it is the vulnerable, it is those on the threshold of the unlivable who keep hope alive. To have hope in a recording studio means nothing. To have hope in Gaza today is what keeps our humanity alive. And is that what you would call radical hope? That is what I would call radical hope. The idea of hope at the point of its least likelihood, the least chance that hope has. Because it is at that point of utter unhope to bring Du Bois back in. It is at the point of that unhope where hope in its bare, austere truth, in its absolute austerity, in its almost Spartan clarity, makes itself count. Hope comes not from those who offer solace. Hope becomes political in the hands and in the feet of those who are taking flight because the world has simply given up on them. They are the bearers of humanity. They are where the human condition needs to be re-examined. Because we are in the midst of this catastrophe, a war and, and this kind of just devastating uh, flight is, um, is, is, is frontal in our, in our minds and in our consciousness. But I also wanted to step back and to ask you whether at this moment you think the planetary crisis itself, uh, beyond 
beyond the human crisis, beyond the democratic crisis, but the the fact that we now are in an age of planetary crisis where every one of these um just the 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 habitability of the earth itself intersects with these other moments of catastrophe um and does that create for you some kind of singular condition that we are currently occupying that we have not been in before or have we found ourselves here before oh we have found ourselves here before i i'm 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 slightly skeptical of um you know the 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 cottage industry or or a now much larger than the cottage industry that that um that speaks with such gloom about the planet i mean there is absolutely no doubt that we are headed towards extinction if we don't change course uh let us let us not even um try to or begin to convince ourselves of otherwise it is absolutely an unprecedented disaster on planetary scale uh i just find that the rhetoric of planetarity of the anthropocene is 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 in its structure somewhere very similar to what we used to uh, uh what uh, we used to hear around the cold war um there is a certain kind of uh, structural similarity between the 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 uh, you know the western hemisphere's obsession with planetarity and the commons and its prehistory with cold war um you know only from certain parts of of western europe or or north america do these things seem so disconnected that they can be uh thought of as an entirely new phase in our undoing in the undoing of the human itself uh so two things need to be say, said simultaneously here to be stated very very clearly to the question of whether we have now landed in an unprecedented realm of possibility where extinction is is imminent the answer is yes to that question the the, the answer is absolutely yes but precisely because we we uh we find ourselves so close to extinction it is important that we don't try and understand this possibility this imminence of extinction in the same language that has been used before for other things and i think it is in that sense that it's not unprecedented the kind of verbiage the kind of alarmism the kind of all of which could be factually provable the fact that uh, icebergs are melting off the shelf of antarctica is a factual point but but the idea that somehow um the western hemisphere or the north atlantic world is more concerned about it than places like india and china <laughs> it replicates the kind of uh of moral condescension that is reminiscent of the cold war and i think in that sense we need a proper theory of planetarity itself a more political theory of planetarity if you will and 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 that in some senses will require us to investigate uh the concept of the human as it was constructed and as it has been understood right uh, uh one one important way to begin that conversation to even begin it is to remind ourselves that uh even the rhetoric and the language of the end of history is not new it's now almost 30 years ago that francis fukuyama could say the end of history and the last man because from where he was which was palo alto the world seemed now to have become open to the peace that liberal democracy would bring worldwide now that the specter of communism had been completely uh, exorcised and destroyed now that capitalism and the market had won over the world 
history had lost its very purpose. Now that there could be a world, and and the the thing with Fukuyama is he is not writing with hope. He's not writing with the hope that class struggle ends. He's writing with an indifferent smugness that history will end, right? And yet, I give him credit for one expression there, which is the last man. He's not the first, of course, to use that expression. But, but that is one expression that strikes as something that has stood the test of trying. Not the end of history, but the last man. Because we really have, 30 years later, found ourselves and managed ourselves to give ourselves a world in which the specter of the last man has become a distinct possibility. This is why we can now be compelled by books that say, imagine a world without us. Imagine for a second a world without human beings. And that's now a possibility. And this is why I think your question is important, because to think about the human is to think about planetarity. But to think about planetarity is to also not think about it in the language we have inherited from these clusters of thinkers. who have always believed that the social contract, as they thought of it, would save the human. And one of the things we do in Mutant is to think through that other constellation of thinkers. That is profoundly steeped in its awareness of the social contract tradition, profoundly aware of uh, the white men who do political philosophy, whether it's Hobbes or Machiavelli or Locke or the Mills, father and son, and yet give us a different understanding, a different conceptual scaffolding to understand planetarity. Because it is in that constellation that an alternative possibility and trajectory, not to mention the arc of our moral universe itself makes itself visible. Do you see the beginnings of this new language um, start to emerge? Or it seems to me that when we look at, uh, and, and primarily in the West, when we look at centers of where you would think thought might emerge. In fact, you seem to see a desire to flee the planet itself. Uh, those who have uh, the most resources at their command now seem to either want to commit them to the pursuit of life on another planet or to the pursuit of an intelligence that is not human. Right. Um, and, and both those, um, it cannot be accidental that both those are happening concurrently. Uh, the rise of, like I said, what we call artificial intelligence rather than a commitment to the human and the rise of a search for other planets. Do you believe that this new language or conceptions of planetarity, therefore, that we need will also emerge? much like hope from those parts of the world that are being counted out? It always has been. The, the, the conception of the human that, uh, that we are thinking of, um, the, the human who retains hope as unhope, rather than a smug indifference and certainty, has always emerged from those uh, let's say, southern parts of the globe, including the American South, <laughs> places like Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama. You know, it has always uh, appeared from those parts of the world and, and the planet where, uh, where humanity has always been suspect or deemed to be absent entirely, right? It is in that sense that Rashil Membe could say that 
the future belongs, or, or Du Bois says the future belongs, the, Af- the future is African. The world is black because it is from those traditions uh, of thinking about the human that any hope for humanity at large might appear. And we are not saying this simply conceptually, but also morally and politically. We were just speaking a few minutes ago about, uh, about the United States uh, uh, rogue behavior at the United Nations, um, where it just simply vetoes you know, um, uh, the proposal for ceasefire in Gaza. And this is replicated around the world. This is what Russia did uh, barely a year ago with its invasion of Ukraine. Uh, this is this is something of uh, a repetition with barely any difference, um, which 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 begs the question: What is this concept of human that the West and the Atlantic world at large uh, is good for? What is their conception of the human good for? If uh, all it means is a certain kind of interested legality, of self-serving legality. So in many ways, the hope for the human can always, will always, in fact, come from those parts of the world where the human is really being pushed to the threshold of the unlivable. That is where we need, this is why the most uh, brilliant poetry around our current crisis uh, of planetarity comes from poets who've lived on, grown up on, or have been forced to leave islands. That is the, the, that is the one tradition that I find fascinating. Um, uh, and in, in, in some ways, the, the question is not even whether, whether uh, these ways of thinking about the human will change anything palpable or structural. The question for us is grimmer. The question is what comes after the human? And uh, not until long ago, this question, what comes after the human, since you talk about artificial intelligence, uh, and and that has made it really unavoidable. Uh, For for many centuries, the question what comes after the human was a question you could pose only in the realm of the mystical and the theological. God had the answers about what came after life. Right? But now we have, a dis- we have arrived at a point where human beings, through these new technologies and, and intelligences, have managed to make this question completely um, immediate. The question, what comes after the human, cannot be relegated to the realm of the speculative or the rhetorical or the mystical, partly because of its unmistakable potential to become real. As we were saying, firstly, because there's a distinct possibility of a planet without us, And then there's that other search for a planet without us where we could go, (laughs) where we take flight. And so, you know, uh, this is why hope is political, because you cannot understand this drive for transcendence, another transcendence, this time transcendence from the earth itself. And this is why Hannah Arendt perhaps, you know, 70 years ago begins with that flight from earth, the human condition in its earliest pages, talks about human alienation in terms of the flight from Earth, right? So to to the question that you raise, whether this is all unprecedented, no, it's not. Alienation is as old as capitalism, perhaps older than that, right? What we now see is the appearance of a new technology of cruelty that finds its resonance in the archaic, almost mystical realm of the transcendent. 
human cruelty has met an ally in archaic rhetorics of transcendence. You could destroy the human on the planet so long as you have the capital to take flight from this planet. And that is where the human today finds itself. That is where the grimmest, most desolate remnants of the human today survive and survive sometimes without hope, sometimes with hope. That zone, that's not even a threshold anymore. That zone, which has become a planet unto itself, where modern technologies of cruelty have aligned themselves with the ultra-modern compulsions of theological scale to evade, escape, and transcend the planet itself. The question for us is not whether hope and the human are related. The question for us is what, if not hope, will salvage our humanity? What, if not hope, will pull us back from this brink of extinction, real, not imagined, and re-anchor us on a planet that we have repeatedly destroyed. The famine in Gaza is not the first catastrophic famine. We are engineers of famine. Mike Davis calls it late Victorian Holocaust. How did the social contract become so amenable, even conducive to the production and reproduction of famine, which as we have defined it, is not simply starvation, but the death of our very belief that we can cope. The Bengal famine killed millions of people. Unprecedented for its time that no international legislation could prevent. And now we are looking at something much darker, much grimmer in Gaza because the world is simply statistically more unequal and hotter. The, the estimates from any official source are devastating. Right? The United States Refugee Agency reports that 2,500 migrants have perished on the high seas off the coast of Europe just this year alone. And climate refugees, if our end is right, the bearers, the last bearers of our humanity, the stateless. Climate refugees will number close to 20 to 30 million people in the next quarter of a century. The question is not as those in power, those in majorities, those smug in their own privilege often ask, where are these people coming from? Why do they want to come here? The real question is, what is left of us? That's the question we need to ask when we think about the human today. Not the question we have inherited from the contractual tradition. Who are these people? Because that's the other part of the social contract. To affix a certain kind of ascriptive, attributed identity onto these people. color them with our own blood-stained visions of purity. 
just last week, Donald Trump claimed in an election rally that immigrants were polluting the blood of our country. And the one thing we know about humanity is bigotry is not a monopoly of one racial group. The attack on refugees, the desire to leave them homeless, the ability to leave them stranded with nothing is as human as any other vice we have as human beings. And so the question for us today when we rethink the human from the South, and I'm using South with deep reservations, pun not intended. I'm using South for the lack of a better word. I simply believe the South, because it's geographical, has a certain kind of plausibility to it that other commonplaces and glib words like decolonial and postcolonial do not have. They are vacuous to me. The question to ask from the South in the spirit of Du Bois is not, who are these people? Why are they coming here? How can we bust them away? How can we drown them? Why should we care? Those are not the questions we need to ask. The, questions we, the question we need to ask is, what is left of us?